Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on dailyfaceoff.com. Hey, 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 welcome to the inaugural episode of the Rundown uh, with Frank Saravalli. I am uh, Jason Greger. I'm pretty stoked about this opportunity. Uh, Frank, it's going to be uh, great working with you. And I think for, for anybody, let's, uh, who is Frank Saravalli? Jason, I, I have to confess, um, my insides are a total wreck. And it's not nerves doing the DFO Rundown podcast for the first time. I'm excited about that. But one thing to know about me, we're going to get into all sorts of different stuff, uh, social, off ice, any sort of cultural items. I'm fat. I love food. I love to drink. Uh, speaking of that, we're taping this episode one, the day after the Super Bowl, and I have celiac and my insides are an absolute mess. I, you know what? I I'm allergic to gluten. And I just said, you know what? Fuck it. It's the Super Bowl. I want to eat some pizza. I want to eat some chicken wings. I want to eat whatever I want. And I'm paying for it on Monday. Oh, see, I'm kind of lucky. I have like an iron gut. I can, uh-huh. I can pretty much eat uh, most things uh, except tomatoes. That's it. And I love, but like, even then I'll make it. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. And I grew up loving tomatoes, but it's only been in like the last few years. And, and all of a sudden, yeah, it's like gut rot. So I try to avoid them. Now, I can have a little bit of tomato sauce on a pizza once in a blue moon. But uh, yesterday we went, we do the homemade nachos now for Super Bowl. Tons of cheese. My son's young. He loves the cheese and the chicken. And they throw some avocado on there. So, yeah, we had a whole dinner of just nacho plates last night, which is unreal. Nice. Now, did you, so can you have salsa or like that? No, go. You know what? I'll dip the odd one in salsa, but I'm usually now just a guac guy. And I actually really like uh, just straight uh, yogurt. Uh, Greek yogurt as a dip. It's, you know, it's better for you than sour cream. So I, I try to eat healthy. So I just use that. And honestly, it's no different. It's just less fat. Yeah, but that was all out the window. So, like, I threw the allergy out the window. I threw the diet out the window for a day. Instead of I get one cheat meal a week, I've, I'm down 20-plus pounds to start 2021. And I just threw I said, you know what? I'm going to enjoy myself. Not a cheat meal. It's going to be a cheat day. And uh, I'm really paying the price for it. <laughs> nice. Well, uh, uh, Frank, of course, is a... Uh, uh, an American. I'm a Canadian. Uh, we both love hockey. Uh, we both love all sports. And uh, so we will talk about other sports as well on the, on the rundown. But of course, it's mainly going to be hockey at all different levels. And uh, Frank, it's interesting watching the Super Bowl yesterday. You have Tom Brady wins his seventh title. Uh, I don't think there's any question uh, who the GOAT is, obviously, for him. But it, it really kind of ties into the team that I've been completely wrong about early this season the boston bruins because i don't know it's always around the, boston doesn't it yeah like maybe they're on the, the is patrice bergeron uh, is did he get like a subscription to tb12 and he's doing all the workouts tb12 book oh because patrice bergeron they lost chara they lost tory krug they didn't have Pasternak to start the season and the bruins maybe look better i thought they were going to take a big step back i was totally wrong yeah, me too. Look, I do my 31 bold predictions every year on tsn.ca to start the season. And that was one of them was that the Bruins would take a step back and miss the playoffs. I mean, think about how murderous that Eastern division is. And you've got the Bruins who lost Krug, as you mentioned, lost Chara. And then all of a sudden, 
find a way to be right back at the top of the division in, in points percentage. One of the top teams in the league again. I mean, shame on me. Did win the President's Trophy last year in the regular season and just had gone to the Stanley Cup final two years before. So, um, you know, perhaps a premature decision on, on our part. And there's going to be that day of reckoning that exists in Boston, I think, but I think we're probably a, a ways off from that. Well, they've made it look almost seamless on the back end with their young defensemen stepping up. And, and it wasn't just that you replaced the leadership of Chara. Guy was playing 20 minutes a night and Tory Crew plays a ton. Like, I don't know how many other teens can lose two of their top three defensemen and really not miss a beat. Well, I can tell you who can't do that. Uh, that would be the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, they were trying to have this transition year and try to hope to do what a team like the Bruins is pulling off. But at this point, they've struggled mightily. And, you know, you look at some of the young guys that they've tried to integrate to their back end, Brogan Rafferty, Jalen Chatfield, Ole Uolevi. This was kind of that year that they were supposed to, you know, go in a little bit of a different direction. And, and Jim Benning had said that in the offseason, that there was going to be plenty of ice time for young players. Losing Chris Tanev hurt. They're trying to work Nate Schmidt into the picture. Travis Hamanick is there. So lots of that blue line is in flux. And you can tell how much they're paying for it on the ice. Uh, both their goalies, sub 900 save percentage, their defense has just not been there. And that's really been the key issue is kind of a compounding effect with the fact that they weren't scoring to start the year, missing JT Miller. Elias Pettersson really struggled to start and he sort of found himself a little bit, but that team is, they're out with the pitchforks in Vancouver, Jason. Well, you look at the three games against Ottawa, their goals for against was 16 to three, right? They crushed the centers in those three games. You take out those three games and, and the Canucks have really just gotten crushed. They've allowed five goals in, in nine of their other 12 games, which like 75% of your games against the other teams in the division, you've allowed at least five goals. And the thing was that the trend in Vancouver, uh, Kevin Woodley from Ingold Magazine crunches all those numbers. And last year, Vancouver was now not as bad as this year, but they were right in the top five of giving up high danger chances, except Markstrom was unreal. And he, he was great on those. And we're seeing that even in Calgary again this year. But I think the combination of Markstrom, who I think is a better goalie right now than either Demko or, or uh, Braden Holpe, and then you throw in Chris Tanev. Like, I know... Some people, when they look at certain stats, they'll be, ah, Chris Tanna doesn't bring lots. But I, th I think defensive guys, like there's so much of an emphasis on puck movers in today's NHL. And I agree they're important. But you still need to be, if you're a puck mover, but you can't defend, well, now you're a 50-50 guy and you're going to be struggling. And I look at Tanev might not have been the great offensive player, but he was a good defensive player. And more importantly, I think he was a great security blanket for Quinn Hughes. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And Calgary is now uh, reaping the reward of that. Not only do you bring in Markstrom, but you have Tanev as well. And I think he's been sort of a game changer for them in terms of the way that they defend. Calgary has also struggled at times, but you look at what that back end has done and Markstrom, they've sort of papered over or glossed over a lot of the, the flaws that are on that team. And so, um, man, it, it's, it's tough in Vancouver. I don't know what the solution is there. I could tell you just in terms of my reporting and the people that I'm talking to around the league are changes possible. Yes, but it doesn't seem like that's any sort of direction that the Canucks want to go down, both in terms of Jim Benning and the coach in Travis green, who is in the last year of his D 
deal also. So uh, 56 game year. Uh, I, I actually think this is going to be really good for job security for almost every coach and GM around the league. I, I don't see very many changes coming. Well, especially when you look at the revenue drops, right? Are you going to, you fire your GM. Now you're paying him and you're paying your new GM. Or if you fire the coach, it's the same thing. And with Green not having a contract, it it would be odd for them to let him go, have the new GM bring in a coach on it. Maybe you just have a temporary coach to finish out the season. But if you're not sure that Jim Benning's your guy moving forward at the end of the year, you know, they're they're probably going to have to do a whole top to bottom search on their management side. Yeah, and look, I'd be surprised if it gets to that point. I think they want to give this team some runway to figure it out. Uh, That's the one sort of nice thing about the way this division has shaped up is as bad as the Canucks have been. They're they're not out of it yet, of course. Um, Edmonton right in front of them, as you know, uh, isn't exactly lighting the world on fire. So they have an opportunity and some runway to get back into this. And I think they want to figure out how to do it together with the group that's in place. Clearly, there's some promising pieces there with – uh, the the run that they closed last season on, but uh, they just need some more support. Well, speaking of Edmonton, Frank, I actually thought Vancouver was going to be the 2018 Oilers after a great playoff run in 2017. Wait, is that why I picked the Oilers to win the Stanley Cup? (laughs) I think I might have been. Yeah, and uh, I I thought the Canucks would finish sixth in the uh, division. Now, you mentioned not lighting it up, and the Oilers Oilers light it up at both ends, unfortunately. Uh, Right now, McDavid and Drysaddle light it up offensively, and their team still can't defend. Uh, They got some shoddy goaltending against Calgary on the weekend. But I want to talk about Connor McDavid, who right now is on a nine-game point streak. He's got 21 points in those nine games. Uh, Drysaddle has 18 in those nine games. But McDavid's on a perfect two-point-a-game pace. He's on pace for 112 points in 56 games. Now, Leon Drysaddle had 89 points in the first 56 games last year, which is pretty good. Do you think two points a game is realistic for McDavid? No, uh, but I do think that he can get to 100, which would be absolutely unbelievable considering the totals that have been put up previously in NHL shortened seasons. You look back to just 2012-13, Marty St. Louis leads the league with, I believe, 60 points in 48 games. For McDavid to get to triple digits would be an incredible feat, and, and here's why I think he can do it. One there's a number of different factors in play. One, Jason, is the fact that they're playing in the North Division and the, they've, there's just been more offense. That's just a fact. Goals per game is somewhere around 6.7 goals per game to start the year. In every other division, it's almost a full goal less, which is incredible. But then the other factor is the Ottawa Senators, and that's really where McDavid can make hay. If I'm not mistaken, the Oilers have seven games left against the Ottawa Senators. And so if he averages three points a game against the Sens, he's got seven in his first two against them, that he that would put him in the neighborhood to then all he would need to do is be just around his career average, 1.47 points per game to get to that triple digit mark. And I, that's why I think he can get there. Uh, it's all going to be about those seven games against the Sens. And we're going to have a really good idea of what, that chase looks like after this week is out. Well, I look at it and and the crazy part about McDavid is Ryan Nugent Hopkins has played 80% of the minutes with McDavid five on five and Nugent Hopkins has one goal playing with McDavid at five on five. He's got points on the power play accident. Yeah. And I look at that and I think eventually Nugent Hopkins is going to get going. Like McDavid's been doing all this when he's, when he's had these 21 points 
Uh, Nugent Hopkins has only had nine. He's only had three points at five on five during this run. So, you know, now Jesse Pugliarvi has, uh, has looked like a player who's, who's really kind of found his game. And he's got three goals in the last two games uh, on a line with McDavid. One of them, they weren't on the ice together. But the point is, I think McDavid's had a really chance to push 110. Maybe like 112, I know two points is crazy. But I think he has a chance to push 110. on conclusion. Yeah. Well, I think 100 is a foregone conclusion for sure. Yeah. Unless now we always have to preface it by if he misses some games, but because of COVID, right? Like I think COVID's the only thing that stops him from triple digits. And I honestly think he might push to 110 because the thing about McDavid that a lot of people maybe forget was in the summer last year when he finished second in the league, he didn't get to train, right? He was rehabbing that knee. We all saw the hour long documentary, everything like that. He didn't get to work on the things he's wanted to work on. And he's talked about it. He really wanted to improve his shot. What did he get to last year? He had 97 points in 61 games. Okay, so that's five more than he can play this year. And I know he didn't train, but think about the math involved. Yeah. Oh, no, I get it. But but when when you don't get to train, I think for guys like that, like McDavid at times was a, was a little fatigued. And, you know, you could see it. He, he even he admitted it even, you know, at one point in the year, you're just I think the wear and tear for him to basically only play in a span of what was it? Ten months. They only played five games. He got mm-hmm. to train where he likes to. And the guy, the reason the great players in any sport are the greatest, because they're usually the hardest workers. I I just think McDavid. And the other thing is, Frank, their power play. Like when McDavid and Dreisaitl, they. They've only played this year 18 minutes together, five on five. They have six points when they're on the ice together. Like it's freakish when those two get together. So even if the power play struggled a little bit to start. Yeah. That's scary. Like he could have even more points than he does. Yeah. So I honestly think 110 is, is something he's going to push for. Wow. I just don't see it. I think he'd be lucky to get to 100 just given the math involved. But yeah. like, I, well, it's, it's, it's a fun one. Sense in your division is like everyone's excited when the Sens come to town. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, Vancouver right now, too. So, you know, it, it's a night for them. And the funny thing is, though, the North Division being the highest division isn't that big of a shock because they had 36% of the top scores over uh, 0.75 points per game the last two years. Mm-hmm. Right. They, so Winnipeg and Calgary and Toronto and Edmonton and Vancouver had a few guys as well. You know, Ottawa is really the only one that didn't. So it was going to be higher scoring. I think when you, you factor in that Vancouver struggled defensively, Edmonton struggled defensively, Ottawa has struggled defensively, except their last two games that, you know, and even even Calgary. Goaltending. Yeah. Well, goaltending is a big reason. There's no question look about at Koskinen's numbers. I mean, look at Matt Murray's numbers. You mentioned the two in Vancouver, Demko and Holpe. They've all struggled. Uh, the only one who's been really good so far has been Markstrom in Calgary. And, you know, I think Anderson's been he's been decent in Toronto to start. He, I mean, he hasn't lit the world on fire either. And hey, what about Jake Allen? You look at Jake Allen's numbers compared yep. to Carey Price. Uh, like, the coach has talked about confidence and price and I know his contract, but at what point do you think that might slowly become a 50, 50 split? Zero chance, 0% chance. Like he, Jake Allen was brought in there to spell carry price a bit more. And I love the fact that price before the season started said specifically that he was kind of finally on board with the change in science and he would get to play the appropriate number of games instead of having to do all the heavy lifting. So the reason why everyone's numbers are better is because Price and Allen are better insulated than they ever have been. You look at that blue line, Petrie, Edmondson, uh, Romanoff has come in there and given them a shot in the arm. Weber, they've got a really, really solid top five 
um, that puts them in a position to win every night with Ben Sherratt too. Like they're they're a really strong one to five. Uh, honestly, I'd put them up there with any team in that division. Can you hear my phone ringing? Whoa, whoa, whoa! This is the inaugural episode. What is our fine? I, I didn't think about that, but we might have to have a fine for phone on. I told you my guts were a wreck. I'm a tr- I am a train wreck today. Um, I, I think we're gonna have to do something for charity there, Jason. Oh, 100. percent We'll have to think about. We'll let our we'll let our listeners chime in on this, and uh, for for next episode, we'll have something for a fine. I love it. Uh, I actually it was funny because I made sure I checked my phone to put it on uh, silent. And uh, it'll be interesting for sure. Now, Frank, uh, we're going to have a segment that we do every week. Mm-hmm. It's called Frankly Speaking with, of course, Frank Saravalli. Yeah, and look, this is where I'm going to sound off on something that's happening in or around the game. No hot takes, uh, just measured, informative conversation with some opinion in there. And look, uh, look no further than what happened in Columbus on Saturday night. Uh, What a mishap. Like to me, Jason, peak NHL moment. You've got the Columbus Blue Jackets playing against the Carolina Hurricanes in a situation where Carolina scores, Columbus challenges in case you missed it. And it's an offside video review. Well, They review it quickly, and it's determined by the linesman that it's a good goal. So they signal good goal. They issue a penalty for delay of game to Columbus saying uh, for incorrect challenge. So the power play begins, and then the period ends. There's 45 seconds left on the power play. And they come out for the third period, and all of a sudden, you've got no one in the box. The penalty has been wiped from the board, and the officials have now... Uh, determined through the intermission that the call was incorrect in the video review. It was clearly offside and one that should the goal should not have counted. But they took the penalty off, Jason, but the goal still counted and Columbus goes on to lose by one. Now we have some new information on Monday morning. Aaron Portsline of The Athletic uh, talked to Colin Campbell, the NHL Senior Vice President for Hockey Ops overnight and This is, I've never heard of anything like this in any sport whatsoever where someone could have this kind of impact. Apparently, uh, the video coordinator, Jason, that is in touch with the linesman in their headset, just as the guy to help kind of connect him to hockey ops in Toronto, he was watching the video. And I guess this guy was supposedly in training. He's not named. And he apparently looked at the video himself and said, oh, that's clearly onside, good goal. And the officials thought that he was Chris King or whoever in Toronto. And so they quick take off their headsets, put him down and signal good goal. And meanwhile, Toronto's freaking out. Apparently Colin Campbell's on the line listening to it. He's freaking out. They can't get anyone's attention and the puck gets dropped and they're on to playing, even though they didn't even get to see the next view, which showed it to be clearly offsides. Now, um, it's not really the official's fault because they heard in their ear and thought that they were being told uh, the correct thing, which NHL Hockey Ops in Toronto is always helping them out. Uh, They couldn't get the review quickly enough, but the NHL, here's my issue with it. The NHL... This should have been common sense. 
you know, you you end up playing the rest of the period, a minute and 15 seconds with Columbus on the penalty kill. What they should have done is backed the game up to start the third period. They should have said, hey, we're taking this goal off the board, even though there's no precedent for it. It's clearly wrong. This goal should not have counted. And they should have played that minute and 15 seconds again to, to close out the period, so to speak, and then just change sides and play the final 20 in the third. You know, I get that there's no precedent and provision in the rule book, but at some point, common sense has to prevail, and it didn't in this case. And it's an unfortunate happenstance. Uh, the NHL officials, these guys are stretched in this year in a way that they've never been before with COVID testing, travel. These guys are on longer road trips, being asked to do things this season that they've never done, linesmen acting as referees and vice versa. Um, it's been fascinating from an officiating standpoint and that's not to make an excuse. Um, look, these guys, they barely have enough referees and officials to get through busy nights across the league. That's how stretched thin they are with injuries and a couple COVID positive tests. So it's been fascinating. But at some point, Jason, like, come on, like the NHL has to just use common sense and say, we're going to back this up. That goal can't count. We can't have Columbus lose by one goal, partly because of this. Yeah, I, I don't even put any blame on the officials. If you have people in Toronto for a 20-minute, 18-minute intermission, they decide, okay, that's not a goal. It's a minute 15. That's the E. Like, if this would have happened midway through the period, it's a lot different because now you're replaying 10 minutes. But it was literally, what, 75 seconds that you would have had to replay of hockey. They could have done that, started the period. Because let's, let's just say hypothetically that the Columbus Blue Jackets missed the playoffs by one or two points. Because we don't know if that game would have been tied or not, right? Mm -hmm. Now that you know they did tie it with an empty net goal, or sorry, extra attacker on for line A to make it six yep. five, so that would have made it technically, I guess, five four or tied it at five, right? Because they still would have pulled the goalie because they would have been down by one. Mm -hmm. So that that's one point potentially, maybe two for the Blue Jackets on seventy five seconds of common sense. Not for nothing, like could you imagine though any other sport where some video coordinator that has no say in the process, has an open mic or open line to the officials to in interject opinion? Like, yeah. why is that guy even talking? Wow. And, and, and you know what? That's almost to me like passing the buck. Like you're looking at, at the end of the day, they made a mistake. The, the, Got to the own it. And they, dude, they did own it. Like full marks for Colin Campbell to, to speak publicly and go on the record and explain embarrassingly enough exactly what happened. But the end result is improper. Yeah. Oh, it's, it totally is, man. It's uh, I'll be curious to hear what uh, John Tortorella has to say about this in the coming days. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, who knows? Maybe he'll keep his cool. Well, he's, remember he's under, um, because he was recently fined within the last year, his next outburst or whatever it is against uh, the NHL, I believe automatically comes as a $250,000 fine. If I'm not mistaken, you got to read the fine print the last time he was fined, but this is a coach that's already been fined $162,500. Oh, yeah, he might not want to, uh, in a season like this, give up a quarter mil. So that's fair. That's uh, totally. Now, what about his GM? His GM probably hasn't been fine yet, so maybe he can take the bullet for him. Maybe he can write the script, Frank. Like, it would be like me Some I'll send you an email, but you speak about it on my behalf. Yeah, I don't think that's how it's going to work. But you know what? We've got another coach that we can talk to that he does get pretty excited at times. Yeah, let's get to it. Our very first guest coming up 
right now, the head coach of the Winnipeg Jets, Paul Maurice. All right, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for. The first guest on the DFO Rundown podcast stepped behind an NHL bench for the first time as a 28-year-old in 1995, some 26 years later. He is still behind one, the youngest man to get to 1,000 games coached in NHL history. He recently passed the late, great Al Arbor for fourth on the all-time games coach list with 1,611 games. He ranks seventh all-time in wins. The DFO Rundown podcast is pleased to welcome Winnipeg Jets coach Paul Maurice as our first guest on the podcast. Thanks a lot for having us. But thanks a lot for coming. Yeah, I'm honored to be the first guest, truly. Thank you very much for thinking of me. That's great. So you got a chance, finally. It Was was it like seeing a ghost? You get Pierre-Luc Dubois in your building after two weeks. What was that like to sit down? It was was more, I wondered what it was like for him. Like, there's so much emotion that goes in to get traded, and then you get locked up for two weeks in the town that you're in, right? So we dropped off a bunch of weight equipment for him, uh, not being callous, call them prison workouts, right? We have a set of those that our trainer would call every day and, and take them through it. We do. Uh, assistant coach would take them through whatever video we showed the team that day. He would get to do that. So, but very, very strange for him. And, you know, still a young man and, and all the nerves and the excitement. Then he comes out to the rink and it's an off day for us. So there's really not that many people around. So he's, he's he will be the most excited person for tomorrow's practice for sure. For sure. Now, how did you keep him engaged, Paul? You mentioned just a little bit of the video. Like, were you doing side video sessions with just him yeah. to get up to speed? Yeah. So we would, we, we've got all of, he would see right from the day that he came in, whatever we were showing the players that day, he saw. And then we'd also go back into our training camp because we run a little different neutral zone than he's seen before. Um, and then there's every, you know, every team's got their own little wrinkles that they run. Really an, an interesting young man, like, some guys, I mean, you will you will put a guy to sleep two minutes in a video, right? Like they just—that's not the way he learns. But this guy can wire, you know, he's wired straight through it, asking questions about it. He's one of those guys that watches a lot of hockey, so he was he was pretty wired into it. It was good. Well, you mentioned how guys learn different. Well, this year you've had to coach different than you've right. ever had to before. The meetings have changed. How much of a challenge is that now? Because there's so much more that has to be done on Zoom than right. you've ever seen before. A, a really, um, you know, you know what? In a lot of different ways, and, and I'll I'll confess this: I hate doing the media on Zoom. It, it, it's a real challenge. So I take so even just talking to you guys now, I can see your faces. I get a different feel from the question. But I find, and, and uh, Scott Brown, who's our media director, made the comment: I can't look at the camera and listen to the question coming out of a speaker. So I got to turn my head to the side. To understand it and, I, and I've the first two or three weeks I was butchering every answer you know I, I didn't like it at all so there's some truth to that too when you're talking to your team so much of of what I do in terms of speaking in a room is getting a feel for it right getting a you, you can tell by the way players are sitting when you walk into a room almost what your tone needs to be you can pick that up and and it's not the same so I haven't that part I haven't enjoyed at all uh, but we're, you know tools to get better far more connections into um, making sure people understand the message, right? So I, I think I find that getting around to more players, not within six feet, of course, but getting around to more players and talking to them. And then I got 29 guys walking around the room, right? Not all at the same time, but the, the, the taxi squad is here. So now you have 
it's almost like a constant training camp going on. You've got two practices. You've got your main group. You've got your guys that you put extra. And then you've got your IR skate. So our days have, for us here, have expanded by probably three hours on, on all of this. So with the, the 29 players around, Paul, and, you know, you weren't a superstar when you played. So you, I don't know if you relate better to all those other guys. And, you know, the, the fine line between being a fourth liner or an AHLer is really thin a lot of the times. Do you feel like are you cognizantly thinking more about just a guy's mindset to try to get them in the lineup? Yeah, the, the lineup guys, the guys that are on right on the edge, um, they're, they're wired, and most of those guys understand it. The guys that I sp- have spent more time talking to that would be Billy Hainola or Cole Perfetti, who is here. So this they, they come into this, you know, they're first-round picks, right? And they come to the NHL, and now they're in this taxi squad, and they're not really part of the big group. And you start to wonder, you know, in the player's mind, are they going, hey, do these guys even like me? You, you know what I mean? Like, like I, I thought I'd go play in the American League, and then I'd be in the, in the lineup, and, and now I'm on this kind of – it's not ostracized, but you you are relegated to a different locker room. You're on the ice at a different time. Now, we, we try to – we've got two rooms going, so we make sure that everybody that's here sees the meetings all the time. Like, we don't have guys that don't get to get into the main group meeting idea. But I worry more about those guys – making sure that they feel as appreciated as we are for how talented they are. These are, you know, we've got two or three first round picks there that are really good players. They're going to play for the jets. It's, it's just not their time. They would either normally be back with their junior team or they'd be playing for the American league team. They'd be playing 20 minutes a night. They would know the organization, love them, right. That we're, we've got big plans for you, but when you're getting a 45 minute tugger every day, you know, you just start to wonder whether these guys even like me. Uh, and we're sensitive to that right now that we want players to like playing here. So I uh, want to make sure we reach out to them. And what kind of role does your leadership group in terms of kind of taking that extra, that extra effort to make sure everyone feels comfortable? What kind of role have they played in that this year? Just really, really important. So the example of that is, so I think that, that Logan Stanley, who was a first-round pick, really big fella, um, played completely in the American League his first two years. I think he's playing on our team right now because of Mark Scheifele. So he's in Waterloo this summer. He sends back a really good fitness test, which was an area that he could really improve on. So I call him, and I, I'm going to say this is probably in June or July, maybe later July, and he's all jacked up on the phone because Shife called him and, and he wants him to skate. So this kid now feels like he's a part. He goes and skates with Shife a little bit this summer, comes back, and he's a completely different guy. He's fit. He's fast. He's six foot three thousand. He's a huge man. And 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 all of a sudden we threw him in. We had some injuries. You know, we had Pullman went on into the acronym pro- protocol. Dylan Demello uh, had a baby, and uh, so we had the spot. So uh, you know, Logan goes in and doesn't come out. And I, I think that's all part of what you had said, uh, Frank, that that leadership is critical for these kids. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we mentioned and there was a, a lot of buzz, I guess you could say, about Blake Wheeler this week. You said your piece, so we won't rehash that. But, you know, one thing that really stood out to me in your comments, at least on the second time as you kind of cleared the air, was just the idea that you know, with some of this information and analytics, and by the way, I hate the the word analytics, like how much of this would the conversation would change if we just called it information instead of analytics. But, um, you know, you mentioned the the staff that you have there and the job that they do. How different could you shed any light for us on how different what you guys are seeing is different than what's publicly available in terms of numbers and and just things that you're looking at? Yeah. So, 
I, I think in general, um, first of all, it's getting way better. The, the public information that you get over the last few years would be kind of hand inputted and guessed as the games are going on. So, you know, here, I'll give you the answer to this question and you'll know this. You'll go to a building and we played a game in a city and I get off the bench and going, that was like a no hitter. Like that was a purse swinging contest. It was nobody got near anybody. And one of the two teams had 48 hits. Right. And then we went into, I don't know what it was, Nashville or Dallas. And it was, it was, savagery the entire night. And I think the hits were like 14 to 16. So there's such an inconsistency. So if we're talking about most of these analytics are driven by shot location, right? What happens when two people are on the ice, what kind of shot and, and one group will uh, account for block shots. One group wrote, I understand that when the, when the sample get huge, you get a good information, but I know, I mean, my point was, I got, there's five full-time people here that do this, right? And we take the data points. So we don't even necessarily use one of the companies that drives the data. We buy the data and put it through our own filters. And, and what we've done is, and our, our expected goals, our expected goals model is pretty darn predictive. It's it's not bad at all. And, and yeah, there's room for debate on all of this, right? So we've got that and and then we have our own key performance indicators that we think are, you know, slightly less predictive than the um, expected goals, but it, but it goes down and we chart all that and we spend an awful, because I find this interesting as hell. I, I, I'm not, you know, I mean, I think I'm not a statistician, but I, I do look at all of it. And I know that we constantly ask this question, what's the most important thing? Like, what's the most important number? And we argue about it and argue about it. And this is all we do for a living for some of us for the last 25 years. So I'm not overly confident firing out any analytics to you. What shocks me is the confidence level that other people will fire analytics out. See, this guy can't play because, you know, he's 0.45. I don't even know. Like like this, whatever the stat would be that they're using. But the confidence level that they fire it out, that that's important. That shocks me a little bit. Paul, when you talk about expected goals and you track them yourselves, when you have a sniper like Kyle Connor in the same place on the ice, do, do you alter for that compared to, you know, and, and no offense to if it's Lowry or somebody else who's not as much of a pure finisher, right. does that come into the calculations? So we are in the process of, of talking about weighting the shot. So the idea right now is that, that you shouldn't weight the shot. The idea is that you, all you need is a large enough sample size and then the, all of that gets weighted out. So the, 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 the idea would be Kyle Connor's breakaway goal, that shot is valued exactly the same as if Paul Maurice was going down the ice with five guys hanging off his back and I got a knuckler off the same and it's weighted the same. So intuitively, to me, that doesn't tell me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you can look at the players, yeah, so we're, we're playing with the idea of weighting each shot. That's a huge, huge program, right? Like that would be a tremendous amount of work. Um, but go back to what it is. 20 years ago, we were doing this expected goals model. We were doing, we we're calling it chances for and chances against. And every coach would do it. And it's it evolved into, is that an A chance, a B chance, or a C chance? And if you put three coaches in a room, we'd all argue. So I'll give you a better one. I got a guy. I work with a guy, Ted Sater. I'll say his name because he was a really smart at my first year. And we had like a two-hour argument about whether a shot that missed the net was a chance and he was adamant that it was absolutely not a chance. You have no chance to score if the shot doesn't hit the net. So the other end of that spectrum, and we kind of test our theories at, at the extremes, 
So if my team gives up 30 breakaways, Ted, and they don't hit the net, they've never had a chance to score. But as a coach, like, what do I do? I won't be coaching very long if I'm giving up 30 breakers. So what are you using this information for, right? You're trying to decide what kind of quality your offense is generating and then what kind of quality your defense is giving up. And that's all of this just goes into that. At the end of the day, this is a coach's tool to assess your game beyond, yeah, we were pretty good tonight. You know, yeah, we, we, yeah, we liked our game tonight. So the numbers then – so there's a real value to this information as, as Frank and I are starting a new – push we're not ever using the word analytics again we're just going to say information so okay. if you take this information what is a coach can i learn from it that's about my team that's that's what we're trying to use it for. we'll see how long that lasts but yeah, uh, no, no i don't i don't think that one's gonna have a lot of traction <laughs> i was actually going to ask you though you, you mentioned 20 years ago like what what was the tech like what was the technology like 26 so, years ago when you so stepped when, in? I, when i went into hartford paul holmgren was the head coach and that was my first deal was do an inventory of the program six vcrs and four tvs the that was the entire hartford whalers program so i had a guy that would come in and this was only at home and he would plus play and record on the vcr at the start of the game and that's it. That was the entire operation. So when you were playing, you know what? Like I think about that. When you were in the Southeast Division, like the we go into Florida or Tampa, the games aren't even broadcast. You'd get the Jumbotron feed. Actually, that's what you would get, right? So I would get just as much mascots and dancing girls out of that. Like you never saw a face-off ever. You couldn't chart face-offs. So, that, that, I mean, the, the change in it is awesome but you can what you can do with your video now especially in terms of sharing which i think in the, you were always able to log it now we were able to cut the video that's fine but the sharing of video is really where it's taken off lately if i could take you on a tangent i wanted to get a quick jim rutherford story from you um you know just to share one myself uh i met him i think my first week on the job at tsn and I was in, you know, outside of a locker room and he comes up to me and he's like, Frank, are you Frank? And I'm like, thinking to myself, like, shit, what did I say? What did I say? And he looks at me and goes, fuck. He's like, you look so much better in your online headshot than you do in person. I just wanted to let you know. And that was uh, the start of, you know, just meeting one of the most wonderful yeah. people in the game. Um, you were hired by him twice. Yeah. Give us a story. I, 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 it's funny because you can ask me something direct about anybody and I can tell you a million, I've known the man for so long. There wouldn't be, a, there wouldn't be any one person that had a greater impact on my life than Jim Rutherford. And what he would always be able to do is get his point across and make you feel good at the same time. So it's, it's funny that his first, first shot, he dropped a bomb on you with your headshot, but it was well deserved by the way. You know what? You know what? He, he has this incredible way to connect with people and make them feel better. Like he knew every time I was in trouble, we, I was in trouble one night in going into New Jersey, man, things were not going well early on. And he said, come on, let's go sit out in the stands before the game. And I'm, I'm not much of a talker like to other people the day of the game. I'm, I'm a little wired for it. Well, the mascot was out skating. The, the, the New Jersey Devils mascot was out skating around with half his gear on, but he was doing this whole show. He had his arms going, and he was doing this. And he and I were in tears, in tears in that. We ended up winning the game, but he he was always, as always my entire life, been able to, if I call him and I'm in an off mood or something's not going well, by the time I get off the phone, I'm feeling good about life, and I've laughed about something I didn't know was coming. He just has that gift of connecting with people that way. And it's genuine. 
Oh, it, 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 and that's what's the great part about it. Right? He gives you the, he'll give you a little shot, make you think a little bit. He'll laugh a little bit, and then he'll ask how your family's doing. He's just a wonderful, wonderful person. Paul, I want to go back even farther for Rutherford. Just, I've read some stories and heard about how you got started in coaching. Is it true that you had an eye injury and they offered you either to get traded or you could become an assistant yeah. coach on the team you were coaching in junior? Yeah, so that was Jimmy Rutherford. That's that's hundred percent right. So I my very I was drafted by the year that Mister Kermanis, who's from the Carolina days, um, bought the Windsor Spitfires. Was the year I was drafted, and Jim Rutherford was the general manager that drafted me. So in my first training camp, I get hit in the eye with a puck and. Uh, lose most of the sight. My I came back and played, but it was over then. I think you need fifty to seventy five percent vision in both eyes to play in the NHL. It was over, but I sucked too, so that had something to do with it. But I was captain of the team for like two and a half years, and back then you could only have two overages. And we had a we had a guy from the Quebec League who had like sixty five points of charisma, and Pat Jablonski came back as our goalie. So I was the other, and we had both Shannon brothers, Glenn Featherstone. Adam Graves, Pete DeBoer. We had a really awesome team. So my options were they were going to, they could trade me to the Oshawa Generals and Paul Terrio was the head coach there. And I think, and, and Jimmy said, they'll guarantee a job in the eye next year uh, for 13-5. So that tells you how long ago that was, that was <laughs> the pay scale. Or would you consider coaching? And I knew, I knew, within my first year that I was never playing in the NHL. I mean, I, I understood the game well enough that and Tommy Webster was the head coach. He'd always been really good with me. So that, that was my starting point in hockey. So I came out of it and started working with Tom Webster, who was, who was really, really into video, right? Really into systems. He was way ahead of the curve. So that's the incubator there for coaches. So Pete DeBoer kind of went through the thing, same thing, right? We had Tommy Webster as a coach, Jim Rutherford as a general manager, and, and we probably ended up with a huge respect for coaching. Like if there's another coach there, I'm not thinking that's what I'd consider doing for a living. The truth of the matter was at the end of the day, I was making 40 bucks a week. And if I... And if I stayed coaching, they paid me 150 bucks a week. Ooh. And I knew I wasn't going to play in the Iowa. It was no good. Mr. Kermanis owned CompuWare Corporation. And I thought if I could get my green card, I could go into Gales for the company and I get 150 bucks a week. That's part of the reason why I went into coaching. Oh, I love it. That's the chance. And that is the absolute truth. So what was what was your first? Because you. Be well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you one more story about that. How that ended. Okay. So the season ends. So halfway through the year, I get canned. I start coaching. They go to the Memorial Cup. We we lost three games after Christmas. They went fifteen and one in the playoffs. They lost the last game to the Medicine Hat Tigers, I believe. And Barry Melrose was the coach. And at the banquet at the end of the year, Mister Kermanis comes over to me and he says, "How did you enjoy coaching?" And I said, "You know, Mister Kermanis, I loved it." I'd love to do it next year. And he said to me, you can have a job as long as you want. And I worked from then basically other than a couple firings right to 2012. So that was a, that was a good run. Well, I wanted to ask you about that relationship with him because Paul, you know, you and Jim Rutherford, there's something about your personality that, you know, they trust and, and obviously they believe you're smart, but you know, relationships are so key in any walk of life, but you were able as a young man to earn the respect. When you look back, what was it that connected you and Carmanos? Because you're right. He, you know, everywhere you went when he, when he started his junior team in Detroit, you're his head coach. And then you're in the NHL. Yeah. What's the basis of that relationship? I think part of that, both of them are crazy. Like they're nuts to have hired me. Like I turned that job down in Hartford three times. I knew I, 
I wasn't ready for it. I was in so far over my head. But I think I've always had a pretty good sense of team. And it's not just the locker room team. It's the coaching staff team and the management team. And we had some, like, that Hartford to Carolina run, those first few years was not easy, right? Like, I get into Hartford, we're not a very good team. And then the next thing you know, Glenn Wesley's got a for sale sign on the front lawn because we're leaving town. That did not go over well. But I wasn't looking to protect myself for my next job. I was going to be coaching for Pete and Jim until I was done. And then who knows, but I wasn't looking to launch my career and create my brand. And then when we went to, man, we went to Carolina. I got a thousand stories about the startup there. I mean, we, we didn't have a practice rink. I mean, our, our home rink was 90 miles away, right? We played 82 road games basically for two years. So, but I was a, a good team guy. I worked hard and they knew that I would, no matter what we were dealing with in terms of adversity, I wasn't, I wasn't, pulling a reporter like Frank aside and saying, Hey, it's not me. It's all this craziness around. I'm a way better coach than that. I, I would never, ever do that. So I was a team guy. And I think that, I think they respected that. Hmm. All right. Well, we appreciate your time, Paul. We're getting short on time. So we've got to just yeah. quick ones. Uh, you, we just talked about your vision real quick. Um, you know, one of the oddities of, of coaching with a mask on is, you know, your glasses are constantly yeah. fucking. I've seen you a couple games without glasses on. Right. How do, how are you managing? Well, I, I, I my vision is is good. It's strong. The reason I started wearing glasses because Jim Rutherford made me because of the just a little bit more protection if I got hit with a puck, right? Not because you look smarter. No, my wife wants me to wear them because it hides the bags under my eyes a little bit better. You know, so I don't look quite as old. But um, I just I, I'm, I don't care anymore, so I just take them off. I can I can see fine at distance. It's not an issue. Uh, I, I use glasses more for driving at night, but I, I get out into a rink and I've taped the I've taped the mask to my face. I've done it forty different ways, and we started winning when I stopped wearing. Like I wore them in Toronto, and then we lost. So the glasses aren't coming out. Love it. All right, we got some rapid fire questions. Ten, we got six questions, ten seconds each. Uh, all right, number one. Road city you miss the most with COVID. You're only you're limited to six cities. Uh, Montreal. Where is your vacation spot when COVID ends? Where are we going to find you? Uh, Rush Bay, Lake of the Woods. Are you? Uh, will you see? Will you see Ralph Kruger there? Yeah, he is about one kilometer where east of me on an island. Yes. We're sending our best wishes to Ralph too. With He's his, doing all right. Yeah, I'll time. pass along. Uh, what is Paul Maurice's cocktail of choice? Uh, black coffee with a shot of espresso. Love it. What does Paul Maurice listen to while he's in the car? Led Zeppelin. Oh, and Coulter Wall. I'll put that name out for a Saskatchewan fella. Unbelievable country western. Huh. Are you a big country guy? Uh, now more. I always liked country, but Zeppelin was was it for me always, all the time. What is the last book you read? Oh, uh, on the grand strategy. Outstanding. Outstanding. Um, yeah, th those are the details that never possible. It's a guy, it's a guy who um, uh, teaches at Yale, and it is an abs on grand strategy. It's an outstanding book about uh, expectations and resources throughout his the history of the world. Outstanding. All right. And last one, and perhaps the most important, what did you get your wife for Valentine's Day? You know what? When's Valentine's Day? Is it coming up? Is it on a game day or not? There's only two days, Frank. It's game day and non-game day. It's the perfect it's reminder. Game day, it's not going to yeah, be brought up. If it's a non-game day, um, 
you know what? Maybe I'll just leave the house early and then she'll be really happy. <laughs> Perfect. Excellent. Well, Paul, we really appreciate your time. This was fantastic. Thanks yeah. for being a guest on the DFO Rundown. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. I appreciate you thinking of me so early in your kickoff, and good luck to you on your program. Oh, Paul was outstanding, man. That was an awesome first guest. I'm pumped. I love that like he was on video so you could see him like waving around his arms, doing the mascot thing, retelling that story with Jim Rutherford. Outstanding. Great stuff. Uh, that's what you can look forward to on the DFO Rundown uh, every week with Frank Saravalli and myself, Jason Greger. Thanks for watching and tuning in, and be sure to uh, download this anywhere. Tell your friends the DFO Rundown will come out every Monday and Friday. Frank, we'll talk to you on Friday. Have a great week. Looking forward to it. You too. Thanks for listening to the DFO Rundown with Saravalli and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.